Ahoy, folks in the lobby. Ahoy. The good stuff's in here. Very, very Okay, well, they're theoretically supposed to be drawing people in from the lobby. Um, I'm hoping that folks in the lobby are starting to hear me and realize that the session is about to start. This is sort of fun. I'm speaking to three parallel realities at the same time because presumably people in Second Life are starting to gather as well and hearing me speak to them as well as those people in that outer realm, the lobby, that uh, we're hoping will come in here. The, the, yeah, I don't know if that's the first life, the second life, this is the third life. We, we're all, all here together. That's 1A. Right, I'm, I'm going to keep sort of spinning out here in hopes that I get attention from people and that they will start drifting in. And people in the lobby are being shoehorned on our way by... Uh, see, I think what we have to do is take the booze away and then people will get bored and come on in. <laughs> Very good. So honestly, folks, we're going to start in just a minute. I feel terribly guilty interrupting all the great conversations in the lobby, but I think you're going to really enjoy this next session. So uh, come on down. All right, I guess I will actually get started, and I'm sure we will have an influx of people in once I finish speaking and interesting people get in front of the microphones. But uh, uh, a couple of announcements. Uh, the first is a reminder to speakers that if, if you haven't already done so, make sure you send to Brad Sewell the text of your paper. We really are eager to get as many papers from this conference up on the website as possible. It allows those of you who had to miss a session, and how could you not miss something interesting in one of the parallel sessions, gives you a chance to read what you missed, and it allows your ideas to circulate beyond the immediate circle of people who are here at this conference. We've seen in previous media and transition events that there's a large, healthy afterlife of these conferences. All, of course, the plenaries will be available for podcast and webcast um, shortly, as soon, as soon after this event as possible. And uh, we hope that people who may have missed one or another of those will want to check that out. But in general, uh, to see that material, you should look at the Media and Transition Conference webpage or the CMS webpage. Or there'll be links on my own blog at henryjenkins.org. All the three will sort of signal to people that there's, the material is there fairly shortly after the conference. I've also been asked to remind, to tell people that we are collecting contact information for the people attending this event. We've had so many walk-ins at this event uh, that we haven't been able to finalize that list. We normally would get it out to you 
Tomorrow we will make it available through the website and you will be able to get in touch with people you've met here or heard speak and we hope you'll follow up with each other and continue the conversation because there's been so many great discussions here, so many great common grounds between various projects. We want to facilitate that. I don't know exactly how many people have passed through the conference so far this weekend. The estimate I heard by mid-afternoon was more, more than 400 people had registered for the event this year, which is the largest we've had so far. We certainly felt that when we were looking at uh, the sheer range of papers and trying to organize them and looking at the, sh the broad array of different nationalities and disciplinary backgrounds that people at this conference have come through. And those are both hallmarks of what we try to achieve with the media in transition events. I also wanted to, t I'll be doing some more thank yous tomorrow at the final session, but since Brad Sewell will be here today and not tomorrow, I wanted to take just a moment to acknowledge that Brad Sewell has been tireless in helping organize this event, and let's give him a hand. That if, if you're here at this conference, you probably had some dealings with Brad Sewell at some point along the way. And he you know, works quietly, he works efficiently, he, he's behind the scenes, does an incredible amount of stuff. He's a very modest person, but he is absolutely indispensable to the, the execution of media and transition and has been involved in this conference you know, for a long, long time. So we're very, very grateful for the work that he put in. I'm going to thank a lot of other people tomorrow, but I, since he was only going to be here tonight, I wanted to have done that. While, while he was present. All right. We've talked throughout the conference about historical antecedents, and I wanted to suggest some, a couple of historical antecedents to tonight's panel. One will be well known to people in film studies, but is worth recalling in the current moment, which is to think immediately following the Bolshevik Revolution, a young assistant director who'd only worked on a single film, a man named Lev Kuleshov, is put in charge of what, is the, what would, would be, as far as we know, the first film studies, film production program in the world. Uh, it is, he, was, he in turn taught 50, all of the filmmakers to come out of the Soviet Union, or a high percentage of them for a 50-year period of time. One of the famous stories of Lev Kuleshov's teaching approach came when he took the film Birth of a Nation and the film Intolerance, passed them out to his students, and asked them to re-edit it. So as far as we know, the origins of media production training started with an exercise of remixing, of taking an existing film, trying to understand how it was put together, and trying to remix it in order to build it from the ground up. Taking a, a step back further in time, and it's always dangerous for me to go much before early 20th century, uh, unlike David, who's trained in literature, but let's recall the commonplace books of the 19th century, a staple of the educational practice in both the United States and UK and many other parts of the world, where young men and young women were asked to copy into their books quotations from the Bible, from poetry, from other works of literature that they felt were personally meaningful. And someone's commonplace book was a portrait of them constructed almost entirely out of quotes from other people's materials. So as we think about those as pedagogical practices, we come back down to our present moment of time. And we've been talking all weekend about appropriation as a form of authorship, about remixing as a form of cultural practice. The projects we're going to learn about tonight are all projects which, one way or another, encourage people to break existing cultural materials down and transform them into something new. That they're a pedagogy of remixing. And this is, I think, a really interesting concept that is working its way through the media literacy, media education sphere at the present time. 
most of these people on the panel had never met each other before, but I had run across each of these projects and really wanted to bring these people in a room and hear what happened when they started comparing notes with each other. And that's really the goal of tonight's session, is to get into a discussion of this. As someone who teaches at MIT, I'm often reminded of how many of my engineering students learned how machines work by taking them apart and putting them back together again. And the projects I want to talk, we're going to talk about tonight all involve taking culture apart and putting it back together again to understand how it works better. So the first person up is Eric Blankenship. Uh, I knew Eric back when he was a resident tutor at East Campus and a student in the Media Lab, and he's now the co-founder of Media Modification, a new startup whose mission is to expose and enhance the structure of media to make its full learning and creative potential accessible to all. He has many years of experience working with children as an inventor of educational technologies and activities, and as a researcher studying the potential of digital media for teaching and learning literature, history, mathematics, and game design. While an undergraduate at the University of Maryland College Park, he was recipient of the Jim Henson Award for projects related to puppetry. So I'll let Eric talk about his work now. Thanks, Henry. Am I on? I guess so. So let's see here. All right. Well, thank you all for coming out this evening, and I hope you enjoy what I have to show you this evening. Uh, we have some fun things that we've been working on at Media Modifications. As Henry mentioned, we're... Uh, from MIT, myself and Bakhtiar Mikhak, who's here this evening, are the founders of Media Modifications. And I want to restate the mission statement that Henry read, to sort of drive it in, that we are building tools for exposing and enhancing the structure of media to make its full learning and creative potential accessible to all. And I'm going to return to this a few times in the demonstrations that I'm showing you here today. So let's begin with a blank canvas, and a blank canvas where a screenwriter might be writing their story, which becomes the inspiration for making a video of that. In this case, Come on in. Star Trek. Excellent. That's exactly what I needed. Ah, Mr. Worf. Good doctor, bearing gifts. A.O. from Enon 6. Now, once on the page, it can be re-edited like magnetic from poetry. Enon 6. Excellent. That's exactly what I needed. <laughs> so you see here, we exposed the structure of the media, in this case, the script in the closed captions. And then those closed captions can be moved, like magnetic poetry, to be rearranged and then reloaded. So you can imagine like a web browser allows you to view source and see the structure of a web page, exposing it to rearrange the structure of the web page and reload it in a web browser, and thereby creating something new. This is the same for television. To be able to go in, take the pieces, and to put them in a new sequence and reload. And let me show you the sorts of things that you can do with that. So here's an example of, well, more Star Trek. Increase to warp nine. Warp factor eight. Warp seven. Warp six. Warp five. Warp four. <laughs> Warp three. Warp two, now. Ready, warp one. Thrusters only. Thrusters at half power. Full impulse. Three-quarter impulse. Quarter half impulse power. Slow to one-third impulse. One-quarter impulse. All stop. Answering all stop, sir. Reverse court. <laughs> <laughs> so, you can see here we're able to take the structure of a large canon of work. This is from many, many different episodes. It was built with our tools just by doing a search for 10, 9, 8, 7, and then dragging those pieces in and then reloading them to make 
this countdown sequence. So you can see there's a lot of fun for fans when they have access to the structure of media, which otherwise might be hidden from them in terms of searching and sifting through episodes to find pieces that they might want to include in their own appropriations. So that's led us to something that has to do with adaptation. Now, in many ways, what I just shown you was an adaptation of a number sequence, a countdown. We adapted that story of the countdown into this little video we showed you. And I'm going to show you a couple more adaptations of what's possible. Also want to announce what you're seeing here today is going to be online very soon at adapt.tv. This is the website where the tools I'm about to show you will be online, and I encourage you all to sign up to be beta testers. The site's up to collect your email addresses. And what I'm showing you is a lot of fun. And we're going to show how we expose the structure of media and then how we enhance it to make new representations. And they're all different types of adaptation. So let's go to one to begin with. Oh, good, the video turns up, sometimes on the projectors. You don't always get them to pop up. What we have here is two representations of the same media. This is Fellowship of the Ring, the movie, and Fellowship of the Ring, the book, by Tolkien. Chapter one, side by side. So you can compare the two to see what's going on in each. And along the top, we have two timelines. There's the movie, and then there's the book. And you can see those sort of thread links between the two showing the scenes which are connected from the one into the other, describing the same scenes. In a way, what I'm about to show you is a new type of closed captioning, a new way of richly describing what's happening in a video scene or the other way around, richly describing what is happening in a book with a video representation. So let's jump into this a little bit. And as you can see, here's one scene here. And you can see, we can jump through to see, and you can notice where they took the different bits of the movie, jumping over scenes. In this little section right here that we just sort of jumped through, you can see that they took a little two paragraphs right next to each other in the book, right by each other, and they took this section of the movie in between, which is stuff which was invented in the screenplay, which was not in the original material. So this sort of visualization as a first introduction to exposing the structure lets you see and allows for students in particular to see what was done to convert from one medium into another. Sort of like a scientific visualization can bring up functions and graphs to explain formulas. This allows for the exposing of what's happening within literature in different mediums. So let's jump ahead to an example that shows something kind of clever that these guys did. You can see they're, we're moving through his talk and all the different places where he spoke. And let's, and then they see they jump to a different section there. And let's see what they. I need a holiday, a very long holiday. And I don't expect I shall return. In fact, I mean not to. Oh, that wasn't the exact bit I want to show you, but I'll show you another bit here. <laughs> I am not trying to rob you. 
just allows for you to see how the students are able to compare these different scenes to see how the directors were putting these together. Let me load in another film, which many of you might know, which is based on a very popular story. This is an old one. This is William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And Romeo and Juliet has many adaptations. And you can see here is the Zeffirelli, which was filmed in 68. And we also have on here the 1996 DiCaprio version. Now look at those links between the two, comparing which Scenes were adapted from the source text, which remains constant on the bottom, and the movie up above. So you can begin to see, for example, the scene directly above where my mouse is right here was adapted in different ways. You know, they omitted entire sections of the book for the one adaptation and not for the other. Exposing what the directors did to bring this material to the screen and began to do a side-by-side -side comparison as to how, how did they interpret things? Why were certain things included and others not? Let me show you uh, an example of a scene here. Oh, thee, some other name. What's in a name? That which you call a rose. By any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doff thy name, and for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. <laughs> I take this, I will. Okay. Call me but love and I'll be new. So you can see the one version there, and I've got the, uh, the call that I'm coming off stage here real soon. So we'll just compare this briefly. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Now, you can see sort of begin to understand why certain things were emphasized in one, why certain things weren't in the other. Begin to bring the text to life. This is a way that kids who would otherwise not necessarily read the text closely can read it closely side by side with the video, or if they're just watching the movie, as an entryway into the book, which they might otherwise not delve into, and begin to understand where did this thing come from? What was left out? I'm going to show you something here, kind of fun. We can cast this movie with the two different actresses. So we'll cast Romeo from 1968, and we'll put Juliet from 1996. <laughs> and let's go back and watch this scene again here. Be some other name. What's in a name? Jump ahead a little bit. <sighs> Romeo, doff thy name. And for thy name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. I take this, I word. <gasps> Call me but love and I'll be new baptized. <laughs> so you can see there's also sort of fun opportunities become possible. For example, being able to repeat the line repeatedly to say, you know what? Play each one after the other. I want to hear this adaptation, then that adaptation. I want to hear this. Many ways to deeply analyze how the text has been made into different mediums. Now, don't have any time to go any further, I think. I'll wrap up. 
but I uh, want to thank you all and remind you that adapt.tv is where we're going to be putting everything that you saw here today is going to be enabled on the web for you to play with, to go through, and also to build those links yourself. And look forward to building this together with you guys and talking with you more. Thank you very much. Thank you. So our second speaker is Juan Davis. Uh, he is a new media producer at KCET PBS Los Angeles in charge of all original web content, including web stories, uh, the, the multimedia webzine. He's currently working with the USC School of Cinematic Arts and the Institute for Multimedia Literacy to develop a serious game based on Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. Davis was recently awarded a Writer's Fellowship at ABC Disney for his original screenplay, Welcome to Tijuana, which is scheduled for production early in 2008. He is the president of the board of Free Waves, a nonprofit media arts organization. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Thank you, Henry, for having me. And um, I am a little overwhelmed with all the company and the, um, just the excitement of of uh, the conference. Um, um, I, where's my, where are my notes, actually? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll start talking about this project that we did back in 2002, 2003 with uh, an organization in Los Angeles called On Ramp Arts. And we basically developed a video game with uh, high school students um, in Belmont High School, which is one of the biggest public schools in, in the inner city in Los Angeles. And, you know, 95, 98% of them were um, um, from Central America and Mexico. And we decided to sort of explore how to make a game uh, about where they came from. You know, a lot of them just left their countries because of their parents and and they um, were sort of thrown here into the United States with have, without having any awareness or uh, knowledge of the history here. And they were so young that they didn't have it over there either. So we develop a game about these two characters that go back in history, and they sort of figure out why, why uh, a massacre in a little town in, in Central America happened. And of course, you don't really find any answers, but in the process, you learn about history. This was great, uh, but I found two problematic things um, now looking back uh, with, the, with the, the game. First, we, the, the students were involved in sort of the conceptualization of the game uh, and the gameplay, but they were actually not involved in the production of the game at all. That was one. And second, they, um, they were living in the United States, and here we are making a game about Latin America. Right, and a lot of these uh, students are probably going to stay here in the United States. And um, I said, you know what? We need to do something else. So um, here, let me just go here first. So we decided to do another project um, where you know I'm, I'm not going to get into the specifics of all the process of doing it, but I I really wanted the students to be able to make a game, a video game, uh, about the neighborhoods that they live in, they, that they live in um, and actually have them code a little bit and write the code and, 
base the game on their neighborhoods. And we decided to go back and uh, look at Pac-Man, which was sort of the, mm -hmm. the cool game back then. <laughs> and, you know, and Pac-Man was, I mean, it's sort of nonviolent in the way that all, all these space shooter games were and all this sort of stuff. And I thought it would be a, a great sort of template to sort of put their neighborhoods and sort of remix in Henry's language uh, the Pac-Man game in their own voices, in their own experiences, and I'm going to show you one of them, um, which is called El Immigrante. So this is a remix of Pac-Man, and the instructions are here. <laughs> uh -oh. You guys can read, right? You tell me when I should go next. Next. So here we are in this sort of nightmare of a place. But this place is actually uh, a rendition of the neighborhood of one of the students. And what we did was to create the rules sort of loosely based on Pac-Man, create similar rules, but with content that they deemed appropriate, right? And here are the, you get all the trash and you try to clean the trash. The fire here is sort of a fire uh, that occurred there, a crash or something, and you get your green card and uh, you, you can go and, um, yeah, uh, you can go and, and, and sort of eat the Minute Man. <laughs> Anyway, there are more games like this that we did where um, <laughs> So we lost the game, I guess. Uh, but basically what we did, we did a, a couple of games like this where we took their neighborhoods and we, create, we created um, sort of the same idea of a maze that exists in Pac-Man and the ghost and the pill, the power pill and all this sort of stuff. And they actually became portraits of each of these students' neighborhoods, right? And um, I think they're great. They're almost like, uh, you know, early youth video that was done. I mean, they're very raw. They were not, as you can see, the difference with Tropical America. It was very clean and sort of sophisticated looking. And these are just produced by the students, they drew them, they did uh, probably 95% of the programming, they chose everything. Um, and then I said, um, okay, so we've taken care of at least one part of my dilemma with Tropical America, which was, let's do a game that is actually produced by students, not only conceived content-wise by students, but actually produced by them. And now I am in the process with the students and the IML and the USC to tackle the second question, which was, and still is, and I am a foreigner also, I'm from Colombia, and um, was what can we do, can we do a game that actually, through the process of, 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 um, of doing it, it teaches about American civics and law and history, right? So I said, well, why don't we do Huckleberry Finn? 
And that seemed like a great idea at the beginning to take Huckleberry Finn. I was like, oh, great. I've read Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer and all this sort of stuff. I just didn't know how big of a problem I was getting myself into. Um, because the more I started to read the novel, the more I realized that there was a lot of stuff that I first didn't know, being, not being American. And also issues that we sort of have um, sort of taken for granted, issues of bondage, slavery, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and here I was, and besides a novel that mentions the word nigger 500 times, how am I going to deal with that? Um, so we had to basically go back and take the novel and break it apart which is sort of what Henry was talking about. And it started to break it apart. And we are in the process of breaking it apart. Um, and I realized in the process, and I'll take you guys there. This is Huck Finn 2.0, which that's the name that they gave to them. Um, so basically, what we're doing is reading the novel. And as we're reading the novel, we're keeping up this sort of uh, side script, if you call it, uh, with LiveJournal. We don't have a lot of money to do this project. so. We use tools that are available. We use these or palatial, and I'll show you a little bit of that later. But uh, we're basically breaking up the novel in part and reimagining it in Los Angeles in the 21st century using, instead of the Mississippi River, the LA River as a sort of conduit, I guess you can call it. Um, here, let's go back to the beginning. About three minutes. Three minutes. Uh, anyway, um, you know, the novel begins with a little notice. Persons attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be persecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be vanished. Persons attempting to find a plot in it will be shot. <laughs> and we found this sign in the LA River as well. Um, but, I mean, I, I guess I don't have a lot of time to continue, but. Um, even though the impetus to go ahead and produce this game on the get-go was the, you know, what I wanted, I realized that there are a lot of issues about race and class uh, that our youth uh, here in the United States doesn't understand, has not been taught. Uh, and before making a game about it, the, the tools to understand this critically were very important, and that's why we're creating this sort of Meta text or side script. And I guess I'll leave you guys with that. Thank you. Thank you. Our third speaker is Renee Hobbs. She's an associate professor of communication and education at Temple University, where she directs the Media Education Lab. She's worked extensively with state departments of education in Maryland and Texas. And her new book, which I highly recommend, Reading the Media, Media Literacy in High School English, <laughs> provides empirical evidence to document how media literacy improves adolescents' reading comprehension skills. And she's going to talk about My Pop Studio, her new project. Thank you so much, Henry. Um, I, I think it's really important to understand, uh, Henry's made this point, how central uh, uh, remixing is to media literacy pedagogy in his introduction. Um, it is a, a technique of critical distancing that's used to deepen uh, our understanding of the constructedness of media messages. And so for media literacy educators, that idea of helping young people understand the constructedness of uh, media representations is a really core, uh, a key idea 
in, in the community. Um, we also think that uh, an element of remixing that makes it so powerful is that the plasticity of meaning gets revealed through remix practices because remixing allows us to see the function of juxtaposition and purpose and context as they affect uh, the process of meaning making. So um, teachers in elementary school and secondary schools who are doing media literacy are using remixing in various kinds of traditional ways. What we wanted to do with My Pop Studio was to sort of um, bypass the gatekeeper. For about 20 years, I've been making curriculum materials for teachers to help them uh, kind of an on-ramp to learn how to do some uh, critical analysis and media production activities in the uh, K-12 classroom. Um, but we hadn't really developed a project that tried to introduce those media literacy concepts to girls directly. And that's something that we were able to accomplish with My Pop Studio. And I have a, a friend of mine who is coming down to give you a little uh, a little handout. And where is she? Tess. Tess. And Tess is coming down, and she's going to give you a little brochure. My Pop Studio was launched in J July 2006. We were able to get funding from the Office on Women's Health, uh, which is part of the um, Health and Human Services Division. Uh, it's a a website, a freely available website designed to introduce media literacy concepts to girls ages 10, 11, and 12. There are 15 games and eight discussion forums. Um, so uh, as Tess is, is bringing down, you can see that um, in the TV studio, you can use a little drag and drop editing tool to uh, experiment with how juxtaposition of images and sounds reshape meaning. In the music studio, you can create your own pop star and see all the different choices that are involved in constructing popular music. In the magazine studio, you can actually turn yourself into a celebrity and construct your celebrity identity and think a little bit um, about image and celebrity culture and uh, body uh, beauty ideals. In the online studio, you can experiment with multitasking. And you can think about the, uh, how your social relationships are affected by your online life. So we wanted to combine the key elements of media literacy, which are building skills of creative production and, and authorship, as well as the critical analysis skills. And we did that by exploring some of these themes, like celebrity culture and music and emotion and time and choice in music consumption and personal and social identity and values as, as they are represented in media and as we use media to form and understand our personal and social identity. Uh, issues of stereotypes and representation, um, multitasking on attention, and how digital media affects friendships. Um, what I want to do is give you a sample of some of the activities that we developed, um, then I'll take you to the website and we can play one or two games. Uh, one of the, the uh, we have about somewhere between 10 and 10,000 and, and 20,000 users per month. So we have a small community, kind of a robust community uh, that is pretty involved in, in playing the games and participating in the, in the site. Uh, when you go to pop, pop star producer at the top, um, you can, first thing you're asked to do is select a value message because as you can see, when creating a pop star, music producers have to make decisions about music, image and music. And these decisions communicate a value message, so you get to choose which uh, value message. Do you want to be, I'm sexy and I want you to like me? I'm a little crazy and a little jealous. I'm all natural and up for excitement. I'm smart and I need freedom. You can see what I picked, right? Uh, <laughs> all right, well, so, so, so for, then, we, then we choose. 
you get to choose a, a, a character in the paper doll kind of fashion. Remember, this is a targeted to 10 to 12-year-old girls. And you can make her slender or a medium size or zoftig. Uh, you can choose her, you can, as you saw right here, you can choose her skin tone, her hair color, her body shape, her makeup. Uh, you can choose her accessories, uh, her footwear. Um, now you get to make her song. And so you get to choose um, the beat, um, the instrumentation. And now, after, and, and you have some, maybe eight or nine choices for each of those. And then you get to choose lyrics using a simple drag and drop tool. You basically have to select the lines for the chorus and the lines for the, of a verse. And after you've made all your choices, you then have to uh, decide what genre. Uh, do you want the song to be performed in hip hop, in rock, uh, or in country? Uh, then you get to apply some special effects using some different like mixing techniques. You can manipulate the voice. Um, and then finally you can play the song. And if you show me how to go back, we'll take, let's take a look at some of the songs that girls, that girls on this site created today. Is that, how, oh, why, oh, how do I, you, will you get me there? I'm not an Apple person, so my apologies. Yeah, so just go to Firefox. Yeah, you're on it. Oh, wonderful. So um, let's go to let's go see who. What, what so we can oh, yeah. check out the song charts and see what girls have played today. And you can see that we see we we see these are um, things that have then been produced today. Um, girls can listen to each other's songs and then rate them. And so we'll we'll just pick a couple of songs that that are are going on today. Oh, let's look at uh, a producer named B B Pops created a character called Hot Chicks, seems to be very well liked. So let's take a look at it. Whoa! <laughs> this party just ain't happening, the boys clown around. We gotta get away from here or I'm gonna drown. Stepping out tonight, out of the jungle, my goal is in sight and I ain't gonna fumble. Okay, wow. Oh dear. I'm asked to rate this song. Right, because that's what we do as uh, as consumers. We we actually do form some evaluation. I thought it was terrible. I, I find it very transgressive. Uh, right. <laughs> um, I'm now also asked to assess what did I think was the producer's intention. What value message did Hot Chick want to communicate to the audience? Well, I think she's a little crazy and a little jealous. So that's my opinion. That's my opinion. I'll continue. And um, no, no, she said that she's uh, independent and the best. So I now realize that I have a different opinion about Hot Chick's message than the the, the the producer. Value messages are in every pop song, and you can listen for these messages as you enjoy the music. Uh, let's go back to the charts and look how the tool let us make a very different song with the same. Um, with the same uh, resources. Uh, let's see here. Um, yeah, Natia, kind of interesting. Let's watch Natia's song. Oh, here we go. Downloading, baby, yeah, download this every day. I'm waiting for your kids, kids. This party just ain't happening. The boys clown around. We gotta get away from here or I'm gonna drown, drown. Crunk it up, baby, it's a party tonight. Time to go 
that Natia is a little more chunky than that thin little girl we saw the last time, right? She's got a different body shape. She's got a different sound. She's got a different story. Uh, I, I happen to think she's a little more sensible as a teenage girl. <laughs> so um, let me show you another. Let me show you another part of the site that I think gets at some of the key. Uh, gets at some of the of the key elements of. <laughs> there we go. Okay, thanks. Um, there's another part of the website called Selling with a Song that has, I think, a very interesting use of remix. Um, in Selling with a Song, we're trying to introduce uh, children to the idea that, uh, in fact, uh, music is used in a very powerful way to affect our emotional response. That's a, a big key idea uh, in media literacy for elementary school children to understand that how music is used to evoke an emotional response. So we invite uh, children to experiment. What kind of music would make people feel like buying backpacks? Choose a song to see how it feels, then vote for your favorite. So let's listen to some of these choices. Drop it like it's hot. When the pigs try to get at you. Park it like it's hot. Park it like it's hot. Park it like it's hot. Like get an attitude. Pop it like it's hot. Pop it like it's hot. Pop it so like the it's drill hot. guide says this sparse hip-hop track may appeal to young people who need a backpack for their city lifestyle. How about this one? suggest that backpacks are important. slides. Ah, oh, again, if you can get me. There we go. Um, so in some ways, I guess um, one of the things we were trying to explore with um, My Pop Studio is for children, how to help them take advantage of the power and the pleasure of manipulating familiar texts. Because that is, of course, what makes remixing so interesting to children and young people is that these texts are familiar. These are songs I've heard before. These are things that are part of my cultural environment. I have some expertise that I can draw on because, um, because I'm, I'm familiar with these texts. And that gives kids this kind of interesting combination of feelings of power and feelings of pleasure. It also, I think, kind of uh, the, the whole idea of helping kids play with remix to learn media literacy lessons is the delight of discovering those shifts in meaning that result from juxtaposition and recontextualization. You shouldn't have to wait till you're an undergraduate uh, uh, and in front of uh, uh, an editing software to discover uh, this. This is something that I think in contemporary culture can be introduced much, much earlier, um, even to uh, children 10, 11, and 12. 
And then I think one of the things we are most, we are, one of our sort of single goals for MyPAP Studio is to really heighten children's awareness of the constructedness of all representational forms. So that when you play My Pop Studio pop star producer, for instance, you now know that a pop star, a pop music song doesn't just show up on the radio, right? You don't just uh, uh, plug in and listen to it. It was the result of a lot of choices that were made along the way, and that at every step, those choices shaped the, the nature of that media message. And for children and young people, that is something that isn't, we, we can't assume that they understand, so that that's a, a real, uh, gives us a real opportunity to build that understanding uh, in, in young children. We've been experimenting with using MyPop Studio in the classroom, in technology centers, in summer camps, in after school programs. And anyone who would like to uh, do that with us, we have some um, uh, support uh, to continue to experiment what, what it might look like to incorporate MyPop Studio into a um, more structured learning environment. We've created some lesson plans and we're still trying to figure out um, how, how we might be able to use those gatekeepers uh, who exist in summer camps and technology centers. Um, but really it's the idea of speaking to girls in an online environment directly that we found most, uh, the, most the greatest opportunity for this project. Thank you very much, Renee. So next, next up is Ricardo Pitzwiley, who is the artistic director of Mixed Magic Theater for over 20 years. In that role, he's written, produced, directed a number of productions including From the Bard to the Bounce, A Hip-Hop Shakespeare Experience, Kwanzaa Song, The Great Battle for the Air, About Me and the Adventure, uh, with Community Prep and the Rhode Island School for the Deaf, and four annual Black History Month celebrations at Portsmouth Abbey. He's a resident artist at Brown University Summer High School in 2001, and he's now doing some very interesting work around Moby Dick that he's going to share with you now. Well, that's a very old resume, <laughs> uh, but that's probably my fault because I'm not good about updating my resume, even though um, um, I, um, uh, at the risk of being thrown out of this conference on my ear, uh, because I, I kind of take a contrary view, even though I'm terribly excited about everything that the people on the panel are talking about. Um, I'm not so sure we're uh, at Mixed Magic Theater in the Moby Dick Project as much interested in remixing as making sure that more people are included in the mix from the very beginning. Uh, and, and that seems very, very important. Also, uh, when, when, uh, when I decided to work on the Moby Dick Project, one of the things was, was, was I decided to really test our ability to do Moby Dick in a way that might be interesting to young people, but at the same time, preserving the integrity of this incredible novel. And, and so our test was not so much to deconstruct it, but to keep it absolutely whole and test yourself to make sure your theory and your concept will hold up under the scrutiny of the novel. Uh, because ultimately, Times change, kids change, all of those things change, but Moby Dick remains constant. Uh, um, so when, when, we, when we decided to, to work on the project, we said, okay, well, one, um, the white whale is Ahab's nemesis, but it's not necessarily something young people identify with. <laughs> Fair enough. 
But the pursuit, the vengeful pursuit of something that has hurt you is something they very much understand. So I said, well, I'm going to deal with uh, the white well, uh, and I call it white thing, as cocaine. All right, now, and, and my group, my young crew is going to go on a vengeance hunt to track down and kill white thing because it had wounded them. Now, now you start, you go back to the novel, and along the way you say, okay, now what is Melville talking about, and how can I put this energy and this information in young people's mouths, in their language, in their time, and still keep telling the story of Moby Dick, moving it forward, keeping it consistent, honoring the original text, and at the same time, with equal energy, honoring these young people and what they're living with. The first test group was a group of young men at the Rhode Island Training School, a reform school. Uh, one of the things you learn in that situation is uh, we are wasting some of our best and brightest minds all the time. Uh, I go in, I don't see prisoners, I see the kid who should be my dentist. Uh, you know, aren't you supposed to be my lawyer? Uh, you, know, you know, you're my accountant. What are you doing in here? Uh, and, and I said, well, look, we're going to deal with um, uh, um, Moby Dick as, as um, um, cocaine, but you got to read the novel. you got to read the novel. And then you pick out a character that you like, you identify with, and redefine him to fit your understanding. Woo! They blew me away because their grasp of not only what Melville was writing about, but the relevance of their time was unbelievable. Uh, my favorite example is one of the kids came back and said, well, Queequeg, Queequeg uh, uh, is, is like a pimp, right? <laughs> what do you mean? Well, he's colorful, he's exotic, he's dangerous, he deals in human flesh, and he's intensely loyal. That's a pimp. <laughs> No matter what you say, first of all, in that situation, no matter what you come up with, it's right. <laughs> so I'm not here to tell you it's wrong. I'm just I'm saying, okay, but now, now as you take Queequeg through the journey, you say, now defend that choice every step of the way. Based on what Melville has given you to work with, defend that choice. And every step of the way, those young people were able to defend it. And I was able, in some ways, felt um, I got a confirmation for something I believe. The next level was to work on the project myself and say, take that information, take the novel, and say, okay, now let's construct a story. Um, why Moby Dick? Everybody was there. I didn't have to invent anybody. I didn't have to invent any cultures. I didn't have to invent any history. It was all there. It was great literature. It was hard. And, and, and you also came to realize that if I could, I, could, I could do a production of Moby Dick with a traditional company with my hands tied behind my back. I know how to do that. I could probably have done it with young people doing an adaptation of the story with my hands tied behind my back also. After 30 years, you get to figure, you figure out how to do some of this stuff. But could I make the story relevant at the same time with two different companies telling the same story? 
That became the challenge. But then you start to realize, you know what? Part of the reason I'm so disappointed with our educational system is we teach young people things that we think are important, but we don't support that information in the community. So we said we got to go back and say, well, we got to get 10,000 people to read Moby Dick as part of the Moby Dick Project. Because young people need to be a part of a community that understands something where they can have a common language. So I got to have a 15-year-old in inner city school who can sit down with Mr. Joe, executive banker, I make millions of dollars, and buddy, what do you know about Moby Dick? <laughs> All right? And they're going to, and this kid is going to engage this person in the conversation, and if this person has any sense of literature, history, and humanity, he's going to engage, engage that kid back. But you got to get that person, you got to get his minister, you got to get his mother, you got to get his teacher, you got to get everybody involved in this thing. So you build a, com a literate community of people that's supported by something that they can all reference. You know, 100 years ago, the, it was the Bible. It was the common link. Everybody had a Bible. You know, no matter what, you know, black people had a Bible, white people had a Bible, poor people had a Bible, rich people had a Bible. It's not true anymore. There's no common literature. There's no common language anymore. And we felt Moby Dick was going to give us an opportunity to create a common language and a greater community. Uh, but we also had to tell a, we had to, we had to tell a story. And and as we moved through the process, I get very excited about this because I'm in the middle of the show opens the 10th of May. We found that the young people were informed constantly by what the older company was doing. And the older company would all of a sudden, in the middle of a great of a scene that we all kind of understand, they would sit back and go, Wow, when the kids do that scene, I really understand what's going on here. You know, the question of can a crew of people be led to their own destruction by a despotic, vengeful leader? Ring a bell? <laughs> um, <laughs> can we be drawn into charismatic? passionate people. Can we do that and be led to our own destruction? How many signs along the way? Read Moby Dick. Ahab and that whole crew, every step of the way, somebody <coughs> saying, hey, think about this. Think about this. You sure you want to? Hey! You know, I mean, you know, you know, at some point, you know, you want to say, wake up and smell the coffee. Well, it, the same thing had to be true with the kids. Wake up and smell the coffee. And as they move through it, um, I, I, a decision I made early on was to call the group the one, the crew, the young crew, the one. Because all would die but one. I was not going to send the kids down like Ahab took his crew down. But I had to take them right to the brink the brink of understanding of why we, these things can happen. But along the way, there's a scene in there, uh, and one of my favorite characters, Teen Idol. And uh, Teen Idol is <laughs> 14, he wears braces. 
and uh, he's like the most unteen idol kid you ever want to meet. Not, and I, but it, but they're gonna love him because that's why. But along the way, teen idol became symbolic of the incredible size and scope of the drug industry. You know, uh, there's a uh, there's a, a, a moment where he sings these songs. Childhood part of my life wasn't very pretty. I was born and raised in the heart of the city, but I'm doing fine on cloud nine. Plenty of room at the Hotel California. You can check out anytime you want, but you can never leave purple haze all in my brain. Certainly things just don't seem the same. I'm acting funny and I don't know why. What? Excuse me while I kiss the sky. Okay, and you start to understand that the drug industry is powerful and big and it feeds us and our young people information all the time that they need to understand how it's coming to them. Uh, there are agents that encounter the kids on the subway. They, take, they don't take a ship, they take a subway into the heart of the city to encounter their white thing. Um, uh, a character called Soccer Mom gets on the train and says, like your shoes, shoes are important. Status and money, symbols, status and money. A, a police chief gets on the train and says, uh, 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 I'm a police chief, 553 member police force, big business, drugs, money, robbery, drugs, money, murder, keeps everybody busy. My son-in-law uh, is a developer, develops prisons, big business. My wife is a social worker, big business. The judges are working. My brother-in-law is a DEA agent, burning down cocaine fields, big business. People are making money. A lawyer comes on and says, you need a lawyer anytime, call me. Oh, I got a stash of money here. I, we know that. It's big business. A lot of people in my business make a lot of money on people like you. A banker says, what would you do with a million dollars in 20s, 50s, and 100s. i tell you what you would do with it. You would find somebody like me. I would take that money, make it go away, and come back clean. Two weeks ago, 15 tons of cocaine got busted, got caught. Last week, 20 tons of cocaine. There's a market for it. The cocaine business hires more people than probably anybody in the world. It's the biggest cash crop in the world. It keeps a lot of people employed. Two minutes, Ricardo. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you gotta. You you have to keep people moving into the future, and 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 part of the way that we have to do that, we you can't just discard old literature. You you have to have a plan that says we need everybody involved. Um, the Moby Dick Project is the first of three that we have planned of this nature. The second one is going to be the Frankenstein Project. And the third one is going to be the Uncle Tom's Cabin Project. And, and, and our goal in 10 years is that we are going to change the literary landscape of our entire community. And we're going to bring young people not only into the technological age, but we're going to bring them back into the literary age. Thank you. So I'm honored to say that we're producing a documentary yes. about Ricardo's production through Project NML, which will share some of his wisdom and some of his pedagogy with a larger community. And we hope in some not-too-distant future to be showing that. And can I Project acknowledge NML my side. beautiful wife, 
whom yep. without her, I, I can do nothing. <laughs> Bravo! All right, our final speaker on this panel is Alice J. Robison, uh, who's a postdoc fellow in the Comparative Media Studies program. I've heard of that someplace at MIT, where she's a consultant for several new media initiatives, including new media literacies, and advises several student-run organizations devoted to the study of video games and interactive media, including the Harvard Interactive Media Group and the MIT Video Game Theorist. And it's been our privilege to have, us, have her with us from the University of Wisconsin, where she worked with James Paul G., and she's now with us this year and next. I'm really happy to have her here. Oh, I love Henry to death, but to make me follow that was... <laughs> <laughs> That's all. I know where you live. <laughs> um, thanks, Henry. My name is Alice Robison. Um, I work on a project here uh, at MIT that Henry is the, is the PI for. Um, I'm going to do this to you guys. Can you stand up if you work on this project? Neil, I see you back there. Deb, Anna Van Somerin. We're in the house, so wave your hands in the air. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm speaking for them, and they put in a lot of hours on this project, so if I don't do you right, shout at me. But um, I'm going to talk um, a little bit academically, which, again, following this is going to be hard, <laughs> but I'll do my best. Um, uh, I have a friend who's a sound archivist, and he said, if you don't include these two shots in a discussion on remixing, then you're not cool at all. Uh, so anyone know? On the left? Dr. Dre. On the left? No. No? King Tubby, the originator of the remix. And on the right, um, somebody who says he invented the remix. <laughs> uh, P. Diddy. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the theory that the New Media Literacies framework is borrowing from and extending, um, which is called the New Literacy Studies. So we've sort of gone from the NLS to the NML, um, New Literacy Studies to New Media Literacies. Um, it's a term that we're using to, to expand but not replace our current concept of media literacy as it's practiced in schools. Um, but we want to allow for practices and experiences with participatory culture, the $20 phrase of the weekend. Um, the NML framework in particular reflects principles of the new, liter new literacy studies um, where there's some really cutting-edge theories of cognition going on this has all been without, um, in about the last 10, 15 years that the New Literacy Studies has, has been working towards um, new concepts of how we view literacy as beyond a functional model, so beyond either having literacy or not having literacy, and instead focusing on the process by which we construct meaning. Um, this includes, I'm going to give you a bunch of citations here, which you're welcome to talk to me about later. Um, multimodal literacies from Crescent Van Leeuwen. The students in my class who are in this room right now are going, oh. <laughs> uh, the multiliteracies framework um, from the New London group. Collective intelligence, we've been hearing a lot about this weekend. Problem-based learning, um, situated and distributed cognition, and peripheral participation and apprenticeship. Uh, again, a lot of vocabulary words, but I wanted to give you guys a bit of a an idea of the um, theoretical framework that we're working with. Um, so basically, you know, at heart of all of this is where is meaning situated? Where does meaning come from? So a lot of uh, the way media literacy has been taught has been sort of a de consumerist model of, you know, if you look at this image, you have to understand uh, what's being put to you as a message, kind of what, um, what Renee was talking about earlier. 
we want to talk a little bit about expanding that into looking at participants in uh, creating meaning itself. So what happens in that space between me as a uh, viewer or as a reader of that message and between you as a writer or producer of that message it's not so much for me anyway about uh, production versus consumption production versus cons uh, consumption sorry <laughs> uh, but more about um, me making meaning and you making meaning and what happens in that space in between um, but what's really important to think about and what I've highlighted here is context um, context is something that I haven't heard as much about this weekend that I wanted to. Um, context is one of those incredibly important words when we talk about literacy, um, and especially when we talk about cognition, and I'm going to show you some um, discussions of that in a moment. Um, I'm going to introduce a video here real quick. I'm going to pause it for just a second. Um, what we've been doing with the New Media Literacies Project, pause. Okay, sorry. Um, I'll come back to that in just a second. But what we've been doing with the New Media Literacies Project is been coming up with um, several what we call exemplar videos. Let me just show you this clip real quick, and then I'll explain a little bit more what it does. Matchups are a relatively recent phenomenon. Too many DJs different producers in the U.S. as well, where you take two well-known sources and you manipulate them so they play together so that just sound good. And essentially what you're doing is you're taking a very well-known instrumental and a very well-known vocal. Both have to be pretty iconic and then mixing them together. This particular mashup takes um, lyrics from, from a well-known hip-hop song and puts it to music from, from a well-known pop song that was then remixed into a well-known hip-hop song back in the 90s. It gives you recognition, the delight of a, a popular favorite, but also the funniness. The two of them together make this, sometimes it's like a funny thing where like the tone of the lyrics is a funny contrast to the tone of the music. Jackson, they're uh, by a reggae singer called Shinehead, 
and he had done a cover of Billie Jean, and his cover is so amazing because he sings exactly like Michael Jackson. But he's doing it to a much slower reggae style um, rhythm. I just thought it would be funny to make a jungle version of that. So um, what we're doing here with these um, is we're taking these videos that we're making. So the is Andres here? Are you here? Andres, you want to stand up real quick? Uh, Andres Lombada and Anna Van Someren, who is our video producer, um, have <laughs> spent many, many, many hours making. Um, that's one chapter of eight total, of eight total in that entire um, exemplar video on remixing and DJ culture. Uh, we have um, incredible people that Andres went out and interviewed, including DJ Spooky, which is pretty cool. Um, and we basically put that all together for teachers uh, to download from the web and use either in their classrooms, after school learning environments, for kids to find on the web and bring to their teachers and say, hey, can we be doing this in class? <laughs> um, but the purpose of all these materials um, is to work with some lesson plans and curriculum that our graduate students are also developing. Um, and we're going to put it all up. We are putting it all up on the web. Let me show you real quick um, where to find it. Um, so if you go to projectnml.org, so projectnewmedialiteracies.org slash exemplar videos. Um, so if you scroll down here, we have several of the videos that we already have up on the web. Um, Corey Doctorow, Matthew Lamb, who's a special effects artist. Um, we also have an awesome video by Neil Grigsby, who's back there, on Tats Crew, which is a graffiti um, collective in Brooklyn. Um, video blogging was produced this year. Big Games that Deb Louie did um, was produced this year. Um, and all you have to do is click on this video, and you'll see it just comes up right here and all the different chapters that are available. So chapter one... Um, chapter two is on history and style, tools and techniques. But the purpose of all these video clips um, is to give anyone who's not familiar with how these practices work um, some real information from people who are actually doing this and finding out what their creative processes are. Uh, one of the reasons why I find this, re this work so interesting is from a, from a literacy research perspective, um, one of the things that I try to do is to really study the processes of meaning making, like I said before. So how is it that we write? How do we think about writing? How do we think about creating and making media? Um, I'm, I'm not so much a media um, textual um, deconstructionist by any kind. <laughs> I'm much more interested in how these things get made and processed from my own uh, research. So that's why I'm working on this project in particular. Um, and then I should mention as well that this entire project is funded from the MacArthur Foundation's Digital Media and Learning Project. Um, and you may know, a lot of you already may know about the project um, in particular. Um, so I want to just um, remind you here, some of you have already been talking about it this weekend, but um, this is from our white paper, which is also available on the website, Project 
nml.org. You can download it straight from there from the MacArthur site. Um, these are sort of what, what Henry calls skills and competencies, what I would call literacy practices, uh, of some of the things that we think are important for students and um, the next generation of learners to be experiencing on a regular basis. I'm highlighting a few that I think were particularly relevant and brought up in that chapter that I just showed you. Uh, but some of these concepts are played out in all kinds of different ways in making media. Um, for this video, we, I just attended a terrific talk at Appropriation. We also talk a lot about judgment. Um, the ethics of making remixes is the next chapter in that, in that group that I hadn't shown you, but it's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and also networking. How is it that you know um, what it is that you can remix and in what way? DJ Spooky talks about in the next chapter, the first thing I think about when I'm laying down a track or when I'm deciding what to remix is, um, is it something you can recognize? So um, he would only know that, though, by having a really fine-tuned sense of what it means to network in that particular context and community. Yeah. Um, well, I just wanted to say one last thing about this New Media Literacies project that's particularly interesting. As you um, said, Ricardo, we're going to be working with them next year on the um, the Moby Dick project and developing a full-length um, curriculum around that. Um, and I really urge a lot of folks to take a look at the white paper that we wrote. It really does develop a lot of the theories and concepts um, of how we see these new media literacy practices playing out in the future and why they are so important. Again, it really reflects some of the most cutting-edge research on cognition and learning, um, including situated cognition, which I think is an important understand uh, important theory to understand when we're talking about why media literacy is important in the classrooms. So, okay. Thank you very much. Those of you who are interested in that project may be interested to know there's a breakout session tomorrow morning that Margaret Weigel and, and Anna Van Sommer and others are involved with, as well as our partners from American University who have been helping to produce some content. For, this, uh, for the NML site. So we hope people will check it out and give us your feedback on some of the projects which are underway. So before, I'm going to open up to the floor in just a minute, so if people want to line up to the mics. I'm just interested, since many of you are seeing each other's projects here for the first time, the panelists to reflect a little bit on what you see as common grounds or, or connections between what you've just seen. Well, I met Juan a little bit early, so I knew a little bit about um, uh, the Huckleberry Finn project, which is totally fascinates me and the problems that they're, uh, they're encountering. And I like problems much better than solutions sometimes because the solution ultimately is the end of something. But the problem, solving the problem is, is just fascinating. I'm, not, I'm just totally captivated by the, you know, how you all are dealing identifying and dealing with the problems of that project and uh, well that I I mean I, I can we were discussing before that I mean one of the main problems of the novel is the character of Jim and you actually don't get the perspective of Jim in a lot of the scenes you get the clues right. that there's something else maybe lurking behind but you know what does Jim do when um, uh, Huck Finn is in the house of these rich white folks and Jim is in the, what is the name, of, they call it, the swamps. swamps yeah. So why don't we sit down and discuss a chapter that would exist in the novel that would be 
Jim's experience, not Hugs' experiences. And I mean, all these things are the things that become problems, but when you start to delve into them with the students, um, you sort of, uh, you know, start to discuss things that are dirty, um, uncomfortable, um, and that as a, as a guide or teacher or whatever it is, you don't have all the answers. I was going to say that I agree with your statement about problems being better for kids. And I applaud you two for the work you're doing in terms of kids producing and interpreting. And also want to say that what I didn't get to show here is the ability for kids to take their own original materials, videos, and stories and to link those together and really look forward to working with you guys to take the videos and the stories that these kids put together and to allow for that sort of reflection as to the hard problems that you're talking about. We arrived also at, at a, a point where Jim realizes he's worth $800. Yeah. And all the kids were like, oh yeah, he's worth $800. <laughs> and I'm like, this is not good enough. <laughs> so we took cameras and we went out to the streets to ask people what they think they're worth. Yeah. And after, you know, select, collecting maybe 30, 25 interviews, we saw them and we discussed. What is the meaning of what one is worth right now, what it was back then, what it means in terms of race, what it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all those things is, I mean, uh, things that you need to, again, it's, it's great to have producers in the kids, but there's a critical groundness that, um, that I think is extremely important. Also, one of the things that, that I have a concern about media in certain ways is, which is different than the theater in some ways, is media very much like so much of our educational system has been separating people. If you're media savvy, you can, you're in one community. If you are well-read, you're in another community. If you're rich, you're in a community or whatever. But, but technology and learning, uh, one of the things I, know, I wrote a note to myself was, you know, how to move people into the future by entitling and empowering them with art and knowledge. But you've got to make people believe that it belongs to them, all of it. And that, the, you know, that uh, I've done 34 productions of Shakespeare does not necessarily separate me because, uh, because it, bob it, it bothers Shakespeare scholars more than it bothers me to, to say he's not, he's not my icon. He was a great writer, but I know some 15-year-olds who are great writers too, and I don't put his work above theirs because Shakespeare wouldn't. He would invite them into the village of writers mm -hmm. and show them how to get better. Over here, we have a question. So I guess this is a question for the whole panel. Um, it's one thing, I, I suppose, if you're remixing Shakespeare, or you're remixing Mark Twain, or you're remixing Herman Melville. These are all dead guys. But if you're remixing, you know, LL Cool J, you're remixing, you know, Snoop Dogg, you're remixing uh, Chili Peppers, you're mixing some artists today 
who you know, came up from the streets, worked hard to get where they are, created original material. And you know, yeah, they live in Malibu and they got, you know, gardeners and cooks Gardner. and what you know, all this to support, <laughs> right? And we all think they're filthy rich, but they think, you know, they came up from the streets and they worked hard to get where they are, and you're ripping off their content to remix it for kids. What do we say to them? This goes back maybe to the previous panel about intellectual property and rights, but you know, how do we judge remixing with people that you know created this stuff today? It isn't dead, so remixing is is um, is not interpretive. It's like you're stealing. What do we say to these guys? Don't be fooled by the money that I got. I'm still Jenny, Jenny from the block. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. <laughs> well. Um, you know, this gets back to the issues of free culture, which is a topic that, you know, has come up all weekend, and there are plenty of experts in the room who know way more about this uh, than I do, but um, I was asking a, a couple of students of mine this week, I said, okay, i got to go do this thing of remixing, you guys know way more about this than I do, because you actually go and do it, um, and I just study other people doing it, but um, a lot of them said, well, you know, it, that sort of, I asked them, what do you say when, when people accuse you of stealing, and they said, you know what, that's a moral argument. Um, I don't have any problem um, breaking the law when I, you know, jaywalk. Um, it's a moral argument for, for my students to say that, um, that they're stealing other people's music because whatever money that those artists would be getting is really not anything compared to the amount of money that is being spent on preventing them, uh, preventing these remixes to happen. So I don't know, that's what my students say in response to it. Um, and I know that a lot of us have other opinions on it, but I was curious to hear what they said about that as well. You know, I, I'm thinking about this and in, in terms of music, I, I think, for example, of salsa music, New Rican sounds in the 1970s. I mean, they all came from Yoruba, mm -hmm. you know, religion and drumming, and they are part of salsa music, but the way that the 70s New York, Puerto Ricans, and Cubans sort of remixed it, um, sort of propelled the music forward into a different expression. And I think it's just the tools are different right now, but I think the same thing is happening. When a kid takes a mashup, who takes one track, puts another one. I mean, our, these little video games that I showed you guys are filled with those little exercises that they, they do. And it's, um, I think it's, it's probably, the, the, we see it, it becomes more evident now than, you know, having um, yeah, Hector Lavoe take a Yoruba beat and, you know, bring it to the 70s, I guess. I don't know. Technology allows us to think that um, ownership of material is something um, that we have a right to, but before we had the technology to record these things, <laughs> the notion that something was yours is um, a little bit different. I guess I have a concern also that sometimes remixing is the shortcut. And we haven't armed young people, especially, with enough knowledge to be able to say, uh, I don't have to just pick from this small group of things here. I can pick from the world of knowledge. So then it becomes about making those decisions. And, and, and it's about making decisions and also understanding how much you have at your disposal. 
one of the great things about Moby Dick is, and why it's such a hard read, is you have to keep going to the footnotes to find out where he made this obscure reference to some Hindu culture god, you know, <laughs> who did something, you know, and you know, and, 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 and the book just opens up the whole world to you. And I, and, 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 and I don't know if our kids are being armed and entitled with enough knowledge to create things that aren't quick and easy. Yeah, and to trace those relationships, to know where those pieces came from. Yeah. And the problem is that footnotes are difficult to follow. Yeah. And even with the hyper-connected nature things are, it's hard to follow those relationships yeah. and to see how many things derive from them. Okay, we got a question over here. It's been a great uh, panel, great uh, conference. And uh, Ricardo, I, I want to just thank you um, for some comments you made that um, and I, not only were insightful, but I thought they were really brilliant, this, this, uh, this way of, of viewing mix, to be included in the mix. And um, oftentimes I think we get carried away with um, the, the um, possibilities of open source and, and throwing our hat in the mix, so to speak, and letting our creations then be taken and going on to the next generation with no acknowledgement or compensation, et cetera. And for black folks, that, that's been a, a disaster. Um, and so um, our positionality in society is, 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 is unique with regards to what this, is, what this means. And so what I would like to uh, raise is something for all of us to think about. Um, as scholars, as African Americans who are uh, involved in intellectual production, we are very seldomly invited to the mix as PIs or co-PIs by our colleagues who are intellectuals or by funding sources, and it hurts. I mean, it, 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 it hurts because we give a lot, we have a lot to offer and share, and, and we have a lot of unique experiences that come from what we've done in life. <laughs> And, and, and some things that are, uh, are, are really special and unique. And I just want to put that out there to folks. And I, and I want to thank you, for Ricardo, for um, sort of creating a space um, for that to even be considered and, and to have been uh, and as beautiful and as wonderful as you are in terms of what you're doing with your work with the kids. And I just want to give all praises and thanks for that. Thank you. I wish I had brought my kids to this because the lack of black faces in the room is a little unsettling. And, 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 and in a sense, it's saying, as Ron said, we're already being left out of the mix. And, uh, and this is a new world. Um, uh, six months ago, a year ago, I had never heard of new media literacies as a concept. <laughs> well, I can tell you now, uh, I got some kids who are gonna be knocking at the door uh, and I, I hope you all will be brave enough to let them in uh, because they'll bring many gifts. Can I say something to that? The irony, I think, with what, um, I don't know your name, I'm sorry, but the irony is that people of color, we are left with the content. We are the content police. Yeah. And it sucks. It really sucks, it does. you know, it and does. Uh, <laughs> the rest can play with all the tools yeah. and do the pirouettes, but we have to go back to this text to figure out what the fuck they really mean. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but it is, it is sort of, for some reason, I, I, I feel responsible to do it. Yeah. Other people feel free not to feel responsible to do it. And 
it's a complicated sort of navigation, I, I think. I couldn't agree more, but I also want to say that it's because of Jamaican dub reggae and because of these tools that white kids in the suburbs, like the one we interviewed, are opening themselves up to all these things they never knew about, and including a lot of black and Latin music. So I'm, it's really... It, I'm not ju at all justifying that you guys, you know, I'm not saying that you're not the content police. You're I mean, I totally understand that. Um, but I also think that there's some value um, that a lot of the white suburban guys <laughs> I grew up with are now DJs and oh, interested I, 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 in totally. King Tubby yeah, when they yeah, never yeah, wore before. So Totally. Um, you know, otherwise they'd just be listening to Slipknot all the time. So. <laughs> well, but but also I think a lot of a lot of young people, particularly of color, uh, are becoming aware of being beware of being the dominant culture, mm -hmm. because very often the dominant when you become the dominant culture, it is a signal that you have stopped creating, and 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 uh, and and you you live on Shakespeare and Beethoven and and Tchaikovsky. And, and because that's where you stopped being creative. Uh, and, and, the, and the oppressed and the poor and the, the ones who have to, are forced to be creative, as you say, are providing the content to, uh, because they're not part of the dominant culture. But um, that's what being real means sometimes. Like, well, <laughs> I'm gonna be real, which means I'm not part of the dominant culture. But it's like, well, you know, but you're also being poor a lot too. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's 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 a it's a mix that we've got to try to find a way to balance. make sure to balance the creative culture and the dominant culture to move everybody forward because one of them is spinning their wheels creating and one of them has almost completely stopped being creative. To me, that was one of the most interesting things about the panel, and it raises lots of interesting questions. Um, you know, we've been working for the last maybe, you know, depending on how you measure it, maybe tw as much as 20 years to sort of dismantle the hierarchies between elite culture and popular culture, to flatten out those hierarchies that position Moby Dick and Romeo and Juliet at the top of the tree and um, LL Cool J and, um, and Britney at the bottom of the, um, uh, of the hierarchy. And, uh, one of the things that was exciting about this panel tonight is that your conceptualization of remix includes the yeah. interface between and among uh, popular culture and, and, and uh, 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 classic literature or high culture. To me, what's interesting about that is, and the reason why it's so relevant to media literacy, is that um, in, in, in our community, um, teachers have been fired for introducing popular culture into the classroom. Uh, there represent some real risks uh, to elementary and secondary educators for uh, exploring issues related to celebrity culture, uh, to um, the, the transgressive nature of popular culture as, as teachers perceive it, the illegitimacy of popular culture as teachers perceive it. And so in some ways we have um, kind of a really interesting paradox going on because in order to move media literacy to younger audiences, we often have to use elite culture and, po and, and sort of accepted uh, texts as a means to um, um, enable the gatekeeper, the principal, the parents, the superintendent, the teachers to say, oh yeah, this is good. Um, and then through that show that interface um, between 
between uh, pop culture and, and high culture. And yet at the same time, I think in some ways there's this um, danger about that um, where pop culture kind of gets used as the hook to essentially draw kids back to the good stuff. And I think that's dangerous because I think that reinforces the sense of the hierarchy when in fact we really do want students to think about and young people to think about cultural forms in a much broader, much flatter, much more open way than the hierarchy that gets uh, reiterated and reiterated year after year after year after year in their experience in school. Okay, we have a question over here from our, our viewer in Second Life. Um, I'm the designated oh, voice of the Second Life sim community that's out Welcome. there. Welcome. Um, so actually there's a couple, but one that follows on this one that actually pertains to how the um, how do you reconcile that issue of choosing something from the common sort of canon, a Moby Dick or whatever it may be, um, with honoring multiculturalism and the different uh, choices and literature styles and, uh, and, and trends from those disparate, uh, disparate communities that you're trying to work in? Well, one of the things I always look for when I make that choice is uh, I have a term called organic participation, which means for mixed magic theater, what are you when you walk in the door? We're not trying to change you. We're not trying to make you be something else. We're not, you know, what are you? Okay, that's where we start. And when you, you look at a piece of literature, uh, Moby Dick, uh, as an example, a lot of the work of Shakespeare, you're able to say, I can include organically anybody I want to. And if it doesn't allow me to do that, I'm not saying that I dismiss the work. Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> but, but I don't, I just don't, that's not what I'm looking to do. Uh, uh, there's other people who will do that, but I, I'm not necessarily, Frankenstein, great novel, the next one we're doing. Frankenstein doesn't care if you're Latino, black, Asian, whatever, you know, because it's a, it's a story about the monsters that we create. I can, you know, in terms of um, uh, Huckleberry Finn, I think that, I mean, content-wise, there are a lot of things to discuss, but also, formally, the novel, you know, is a story of, uh, you know, a foster child that runs away. He used to have his little crew, you know, which a lot of kids do. Uh, there are, like, four different languages in the novel. I mean, it's all English, but there are four different, um, you know, and kids, uh, they take, uh, Tom Sawyer takes... Um, uh, novels and reinvents them and tells them to his friends and uh, so there's all these intersections to I think the remixing issue that we're talking about in the novel already that are so easily translated to the experiences of um, you know of the kids that that I'm working with. Can I just say one more quick thing about that I think what's really fantastic about each of these projects is what they're doing is contextualizing the learning experience for the students, which goes back to what I was saying about the, the, the theory behind this. Pop culture sort of comes with context already in it. You know, it's sort of packaged for kids. It's much more difficult to do what you guys are doing and to take on what is a, you know, white canonized literature um, from other centuries with different language. and. Um, put that in a context that's relevant for your particular students. Um, so 
that's not to say I don't I didn't love you know writing a paper on the Red Hot Chili Peppers when I was a junior in high school. I loved it, but um, it it was the context that um, that was already immediately available to me that I was able to understand it and learn from it. Um, for, from a teacher's perspective, I think it's it's much more difficult to find a common context um, for kids with with some of this canonized literature. So that's all the more reason why some of these projects are so interesting. Do you, you have another question there, Philip? Or? One more. All right. And we'll make this the last question. I've seen people getting tired and restless out there. As good as the panel is, the hour is late. So let's take one last question and then let so everyone go. The other question that I'll, I'll end with is um, you mentioned the, the importance of having everybody participating in, their, in the larger community involved in, all, in, in much of your projects. And I guess the, the question was, besides the fact that you're large and imposing, how did you, uh, how, how did you convince people? <laughs> how did you convince people to, uh, to have that level of engagement instead of these islands of learning stuck in little boxes? You gotta get people's faces, you know? Sometimes you gotta get them excited about something. You gotta, you know, God, it's just, it's something they already know. I mean, 99% of the people in this country, you say Moby Dick, and they can go, that whale thing? <laughs> <laughs> That's an end. You're, you're, you're in, and, 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 uh, uh, and you have to make it important to let them know that it, you think it's important that they know, that they be a part of it, uh, not as a group not sitting in front of 500 people going, everybody read Moby Dick. You gotta grab that person on the street. You gotta meet them in the hallway. You, they call, I mean, you gotta do it one at a time. You just, you can't do it as a group dynamic because it just gets lost. Get them one at a time, get somebody's mom. You know. Well, you know, one thing you mentioned, you know, you ask somebody what they think of Moby Dick. It's this abstract idea yeah. and what you guys are doing is making constructions. You're actually, I'd say that what you're doing to get people engaged in the material is by acting it, performing it, reinterpret the act of constructing and doing that, you're taking these vague ideas that are on the page and you're making them yeah. solid ideas that they can work with in their mind and apply in new situations. And I, I would think that that would be one of the things here. It's not just uh, the act of sampling, but interpreting and actually building something new to make those ideas concrete. And the neighbor kid is in the play. That's important. I mean, my brother-in-law is in the play. Yeah, and I, I know somebody up there. That, that is so important that I know somebody. And he's, he's in one of my classes. She goes to my church. That's important. And we have just, you know, we get so much stuff in the mail today that says, you know, come see this thing. And okay. <laughs> you know, if somebody calls you on the phone and says, you know, I'm doing this play, I'm running the air, here's something, come see the play, I'll make it, you know, I want you to come. Why'd you do it? Why is it important? Why'd you perform it that way? What? That's different than when I did it a few years ago. Totally, and, and you, we just have to find new ways of investing people in, in the living experience. Okay. Thank you so much for a fantastic discussion. <laughs> what an honor. Likewise. Oh, yeah. man.